You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Well, look, I think I think part of it, too, is he's obviously not gotten over this thing about being fired from Metallica. So he wanted to do to somebody else what he felt they did to him, which is kick him out. And then someone else played his guitar parts. So let's kick Junior out. And then we'll have someone else play his bass parts. And to me, I'm like, I don't care. I already fucking helped put the record together. I, I played on the record. I got paid to be on the record. So, hey, if you want to have someone else play on it, whatever, you know. Hello, welcome to another episode of 2020. My name is Corey Peza. I'm here, as always, with Siobhan and Ben, and we have uh, exhausted our coffee because we're up a bit earlier for this one compared Elves to Elves and coffee. Yeah, we, we didn't even need coffee because <laughs> David Ellison was on fire this morning, this afternoon, wherever you are, whatever time you're listening. He had so many things to say. I mean, I don't even know how to summarize this episode in one sentence. I mean, a lot of the questions that you may have about what is going on with David Ellison, Dave Mustaine, any of the stories from the past, we really yeah. cover it all in this episode. The subtle art of not giving a fuck <laughs> by David Ellison. Ladies and gentlemen, my name's Benny Goodman. I am here with my compatriots, my cohorts, my bandmates in Lost Symphony, because our guest today actually was on a bunch of Lost Symphony records. If you haven't heard his playing with us, I guarantee you've heard his playing. He's one of the greatest bassists, one of the greatest business people in music, because this guy, I, I am tired of reading headlines, not only from a certain dude, but also of all the things he's doing, because it's just, it's tiresome how much you're doing. But one of my legends that it's on my wall, and I say my legend because he lives in my fantasy world of rock and roll and heavy metal, David Elson! Hey, how are you? Good, welcome back, and I know it's early where you are. It feels early for us here on the East Coast. I know, (laughs) know. it's like 9 a.m. I'm like, wow, this is way before rock and roll hours, but we're good. Yeah, I feel the same way, and it's noon here, so. Right, nice and fresh for a good conversation. (laughs) Well, we have some of this right here. That's right. (laughs) Brought to you by Ellison Coffee Company. Gameless plug, yeah, exactly. It's great, the branding is awesome. Which is, by the way, delicious, because David, when he came down to be on Lost Symphony, which is our, our our band together. If you haven't heard him on, for example, No Exit with Jeff Loomis. So if you guys are like, what's David doing? Well, first off, I mean, if you don't know what he's doing, then you clearly don't have an internet connection. But one of the things he did with us was with uh, Jimmy Bell from Autograph. He did a song. He did a song with Jeff Loomis. He's all, we actually did a Chopin song together uh, with Lost Symphony. But before we get into all the crazy stuff that you're doing, because there's no shortage. I just want to address the fact that the internet is assaulting me, in particular Blabbermouth and Metal Injection and all the places that I read religiously, because I love those places. It seems as is a certain bandmate, and I'll just call him Dave Mustaine, uh, has a lot to say about a lot of things. And I'm just reading. So, okay, let me give you an example. I'm going down my feed and it says June 24th, 2022. Dave Mustaine will forgive David Allison, but won't play music with him anymore. June 23rd, the day before. Megadeth's Dave Mustaine on David Ellison. It was hard on me letting him go. And then my favorite, which was yesterday, Dave Mustaine accuses my friend David Ellison of trying to poach Megadeth's song's Kingmaker. It was so pathetic. Can we just address that? What did you poach? Well, look, I'll say to this one. 
first of all, he's not my bandmate. He's a former bandmate, right? And um, once, you know, we parted ways, I moved on, you know, and uh, got on with the business at hand, which, of course, is music. And uh, that's what I talk about. New music. Let the music do the talking, as our friend Joe Perry once said, right? Just get on with it, right? And, um, you know, I don't uh, like to get down in the mud because... You know, that that that's great for headlines and clickbait, but it doesn't really do much for anything else. You know, uh, it's it's news of the moment and that passes and then something else comes across the news feed. So, uh, you know, look, I'm pretty well known because of music and I'd rather be known for that than, you know, fighting and tabloids and stuff like that. So, you know, to me, it's like, you know, why why go down in the mud you know, and fight like a child, you know, it's just, it's uncalled for. So, uh, regarding Kingmaker, you know, it's interesting. The record was done, or at least my bass parts were done. And Dave, at the end of the session, at the end of the day, he said to me, he said, Hey man, if you want to go through the record, if there's anything you want to add or tweak or change, blah, 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 giving me free license to do so. Cause you know, he had signed off on everything. <clears throat> um, said, all right, no problem. So after he left, me and Chris Broderick and Johnny K sat in the studio and, and and I said, you know, I do have this one little bit, this little thing. And I showed it to them and Broderick goes, dude, that would be really cool at the beginning of Kingmaker. I said, huh, interesting idea. Um, and in my opinion, I think Kingmaker is probably the better song in the record and just, you know, uh, off the off the top for me. Um, Johnny liked it. We sat, we worked on it and um, put it together and we were all excited. You know, Dave walks in the next day in a much different mood. Grumpy, I might add, <laughs> and not feeling so joyous as the night before. And uh, I said, hey, man, I got actually I think maybe Johnny, either me or Johnny said, hey, I got something I want you to listen to that we worked on last night. And there's this kind of, you know, disapproving look and, and Johnny plays it for him all excited, you know. Because I think the three of us all heard the same thing. Hey, if you want to add anything, you want to work on anything, please do. Well, Dave didn't seem to maybe remember that conversation. And, and uh, so what he walked into was, why the hell are you messing with my song? And I think he pulled Broderick aside and said, don't you dare add David Ellison stuff to my songs. And, you know, and that started, I, we tested that little theory. I remember when I first came back to the band in 2010, uh, we'd done a year of Rest in Peace. We were now supposed to, we had about 10 weeks to write the uh, 13 record, the record to become 13. And... Um, and I said, well, look, we're all going to be at NAM in Anaheim. Why don't we just go down to Vic's garage, which is down in kind of by San Diego, Fallbrook area, uh, north of San Diego. I said, why don't we just get in a room and fire some ideas and just see what, see where we're at with everything, you know? And I swear to God, the first day we play, we were working, you know, it took a couple of days because we we're listening to stuff. They wanted to listen to everybody's ideas. And he acknowledged everybody had a couple things that he liked. And, and so we get in the room, guitars on, saddle up, and we start playing on something. And keep in mind, I hadn't been in this environment for almost 10 years now, right? Because this is, well, 2011. Last time we'd worked on a record together was World Needs a Hero in 2001. Yes, yeah, so literally 10 years. So, um, and I've been working with all kinds of other people where it's like, Hey, killer idea. How about this? Oh man. How about that? You know, collaborative, right? You're mm -hmm. having musical conversation in the room. So, you know, and knowing how things have been in the past, Dave will start with something, bring an idea in, and maybe someone says, Hey, that's cool. How about we add this little bit here? Or maybe that riff goes with this riff. No, no, no. Um, 
And so I said, hey, I got something that might go with that. Dave immediately took his guitar off, walked in the office. I looked at Sean Drover, and, and Sean and Chris are just shaking their head. I said, what the hell is that all about? He goes, he goes, dude, trust me, the days of collaborating are long gone. Like that Megadeth that you were in, that's way over. So in the office, and uh, Dave was, he was furious, but yet, you know, we didn't want our newfound friendship to deteriorate. So I said, what, dude, what's the deal? And he said, he said, don't try to put your ideas into my songs. I said, no problem. I said, all good. Just today's day one. I said, no worries, you know. And that was the last we ever jammed together. Um, everything after that, on every other Megadeth record after that, was just Dave writing the songs, doing his thing. Now, that was different on 2000, on, on this current record in 2019, um, you know, where we were in the room together. Actually, Dave was doing his thing, and then he was off taking care of his medical stuff at the time. And so Chris Reichstar said, look, to me and Kiko and Dirk said, look, you guys are here. We need to write a record. We got five beginnings of five songs, and we've supposed to be working on this record for a year and a half. Get in the room, like, let's go. So we saddled up and started ripping on stuff. In fact, I remember there's one song, might have even been that first one that they put out, I can't remember. It was one of them, but I remember we kind of modeled it after Black Friday. We just kind of took, you know, this sort of mellow intro into a full-on ripping part. It's funny you say that because I sat down with Paul Lorenzo, the drummer from yeah. uh, Lost Symphony, and I played the new record, the new song, and which, yeah. by the way, is incredible. I mean, it's really it's great. I love, I yeah. love Megadeth, yeah. and he actually said this reminds me of Black Friday. I think That's that was the, the first one. thing I that he we said. Modeled it. It's the yeah, first we modeled thing he it. said. Yeah. So we went down, and and I remember Dave came in. Again, furious that we were working on stuff without him. And Rakestraw took the bullet and said, hey, it's my idea, man. These guys are here. You know, everybody's here to work. We need to get a record done. And uh, he, it's to which he replied, I want to know who wrote what part where. And I, I could see it coming. He goes, I, I knew he was going to see what parts I wrote and take him out, which he did. He took all my parts off the record. And um, of which there were several. And, you know, either rewrote them or, you know, changed them just to make sure that I wouldn't have any writing on the record. And, uh, and I, I just saw it come and I rolled my eyes and just like, you know, whatever, you know what I mean? So, uh, I was there for about five weeks and then I went home for father's day and I just never went back. <laughs> I was like, whatever, you know, I went back a year later to record bass and, uh, you know, and, and it, all of a sudden now all my parts are off the record, you know, all my kind of writing contributions. So, um, you know, we did work together on a, on a track, in 2021 it's funny in 2021 a psychic called me up a friend of mine she did an interview for a road and track magazine she calls me up and one of the first things she says she goes yeah dave doesn't want you on the new album i'm like yeah no shit <laughs> you don't need a psychic <laughs> and, uh, that, dude. and um i don't even the, need a psychic six cents, yeah. yeah right i was like it's pretty let obvious, me ask, but... ask my magic eight ball does dave mustaine want to relinquish control <laughs> yeah, right, yeah pretty fucking <laughs> unlikely it's so funny what she said she goes he resents that he has to include you he wants this album to be his story he doesn't want you to be a part of it and i said fair enough i got four other records i'm working on i mean keep in mind since this megadeth record has been worked on in five years i put out four records two books and a movie you know what i mean so it's not like i've had lack of and content. coffee you have and, new and, art and actually, line if coming lost symphony, if you had lost yeah. symphony there's probably record number five so there you go you know, well, yeah, we actually it's... did three records with you so you have yeah, three records right. with us so now we're up to like eight eight <laughs> records so you know and it's uh you know, so it, it is what it is. And again, I just I just let everybody have their time and their space to do what they needed to do. But uh, so, you know, I kind of saw events of last year as just the perfect opportunity to, you know, to uh, 
you know, choose, choose box office over brotherhood. And, you know, so honestly, look, I look back on it now. I feel like I got kicked out of hell. So whatever, you know, <laughs> well, let me know. Know. So I, straight, I was going to say, I mean, I, I don't know how I would feel if somebody was doing everything they could to, to eliminate any mark of my work oh, yeah. on something. No, I mean, it, it was, it was abusive for sure. You know, it was just abusive. It was, it was unnecessary. And uh, so, you know, quite honestly, it's like, all right, you know, I'd already moved a lot of my equipment out of the Megadeth storage locker after I recorded my bass parts, you know, and Dave, Dave, you know, even, you know, even said he had a resentment toward me, you know, that he couldn't let go. And I didn't know what it was, but clearly I can tell, I, mean, I like, can tell you as a Megadeth yeah. fan, let me tell you outside. Sure. So you have these amazing players, Marty Friedman, you have mm-hmm. Sean Drover, you have Chris Broderick, all these guys. But they aren't original Megadeth players. They're right. guys that can be erased and replaced. Kiko can play all those parts, all that stuff. But you can't take away the <laughs> fact that David Ellison was an original founding member of Megadeth. So when yeah, you came back, sure. everyone was stoked about it. But it's right. like, now we have two of the original members of KISS, let's say. But yeah, yeah. You're not, but he's the Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. So the idea <laughs> that Peter or Ace would get any kind of credit... Yeah. upset him which is why he probably didn't want to do any collaborative effort now these guys are playing on it so i noticed in the press he's like there's eight songs with kiko and there's a bunch of songs dirk was like i i had my ideas heard and but i almost feel like he let those guys do it specifically so when he finally got his resentment out towards you he could be yeah. but look i'm a collaborative guy i have drum circles with dirk we're cool sure. david just didn't offer anything good to this band and it's yeah. so clear that he just wanted to erase the fact that's his resentment because you actually no matter what people say you can't take away the fact that you are our original part of megadeth and you're a part of the the, the history that cannot be erased regardless of what members and how great they are he continues mm-hmm. to, uh, to go with that's what his problem is i can tell you mm. from a mile you should, you away you should be a psychic you should be a psychic <laughs> <laughs> i am psychic, you're psychic psycho. that you knew yeah. that right. psychotherapy with benny goodman i love yeah. it. all right we'll go with that then yeah, uh, I, I read, mean, I read his and, book. It all makes sense. I mean, I sense yeah. that from word number one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, yeah. when I came back, you know, things were not going in the right direction. And like you said, you know, one plus one now equals four, not two. You know what I mean? They're just greater than some of its parts. And everybody was excited. And because, look, we're bands, man. Bands aren't just about dudes making music. It's about you are our culture. You represent all that we are, what we grew up with. It's like when I see Cheap Trick or Kiss or any of my bands, I want to see those four guys or five guys, however many it was in whatever group it was, Errol Smith or whatever. It's like that to me represents, you know, that represents a part of my past that that was probably fun, cool. And when I see that splinter and fall apart, I mean, I watched it when, when, you know, we had to let Nick Menza go, you know, his health was failing in a way that he wasn't playing as good at that time. And, and, uh, and it was sad because I knew it's like, this is the end of an era. I mean, cause once you, one, again, mm-hmm. once Peter, Chris or Ace Fraley leave, dude, the, the franchise crumbles and that's the same thing happened with us, you know? Well, I, I, I gotta tell you, I, I cannot believe how diplomatic and uh, adulty you are with all your comments because I, there's all these trolls online. There's all these people that everything that all these sites say, it's just Dave Mustaine beating you up, which I have to think, look, everyone knows him as this guy. And it's like now he has a record that just came out. Right. Why not be that guy? And because he's he's running on this self-righteous platform of like, David is this pariah. So I, I, I'm offended by him. I, I'll forgive him. All these different yeah. stages of dude, death dude, and dying. He's, he's fighting with himself. Like, there's no one, you know, 
he's in a game of tug of war with him. So I'm not fighting with him. <laughs> I've just moved on. You know what I mean? It's like, I remember we, we talked about that after he jammed with Metallica on the big four. I said, how was that last night playing MI Evil? And he said, he goes, you know, those guys kicked me out of the band and they just moved on. And I held on to the resentment for all these years. It's like, same thing for me. It's like, why is he resenting me? It's like, he got rid of me. Supposedly the problem should have gone away if he got rid of me, but the problem still seems to be there. Maybe they fired well, the wrong guy. I well, don't know. no, that's probably a lifelong problem at this point. You know, it's like eternal dissatisfaction. I mean, yeah. Well, look, I think I think part of it, too, is he's obviously not gotten over this thing about being fired from Metallica. So he wanted to do to somebody else what he felt they did to him, which is kick him out. And then someone else played his guitar parts. So let's kick Junior out and then we'll have someone else play his bass parts. And to me, I'm like, I don't care. I already fucking helped put the record together. I, I played on the record. I got paid to be on the record. So, hey, if you want someone else playing it, whatever, you know. Um, you know, Steely Dan would have like five guitar players coming to play solos. We never knew which one was. Go- I'm reading the new Steve Luke at their book, The Gospel According to Luke. You know, oh, they talk about it. It's like we never knew whose solo was going to be. I was it Larry Carlton, Jay Graydon. Like who, we didn't know until it hit the radio. Like, oh, wait a minute, that's my solo. You know, so yeah. Well, you're in Steely Dan. Everyone's Marty Friedman. It's like Skunk Baxter <laughs> or Larry Carlton. Like those guys are Jedi. So like, and the fact that they didn't need the credit. What a yeah. different environment that is. Yeah. But I, I have to think to myself that you are. I, 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 I bless you, man. Like, and I, I don't mean that in a sarcastic way, but like all these <laughs> things, this guy's doing all of this and you're, and you're actually saying something hysterical to me, which is he's fighting with himself. The guy that goes, hello, me, meet the real me. And then even accuses you of not being the guy that he used to know. Maybe he's not the personality that he was. <laughs> well, look, you know, the role only worked if I would be junior and say, yes, Dave, right? Because those are the only two words that work you know, in the emperor's new clothing. Yes, Dave, you know what I mean? And as soon as you don't say that, and as soon as you have an opinion or, you know, try to be collaborative or, you know, look, the 90s were the period of the band that had the greatest output for a reason. First of all, we were very equally yoked as far as how we thought, how we looked, you know, we had, there was a synergy about it, but it was also very collaborative. You know, Nick Menza talked about it in his book and and uh, Marty even talked about it in the Rust and Peace book, man. And it's like, you know, to be a band on demand for whatever we were writing, but then then to ask for some participation and collaboration. You know, in Nashville, there's a thing called a third for a word. If you're in the room, you're getting paid for being part of the, the collaborative process. If I just come up with one word, subway, you know, yeah. oh, yeah, right. Let's make the song about a subway. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like I get a third of the publishing, right? So, you know, um, and it's not like, like in Kingmaker, I think I got 5%. So it's not like I got half the song. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, it wasn't a big chunk of money. But uh, somebody told me that they saw that we actually had a cue, which is like a song placement in that. Um, what are the, who are those three guys? Impractical Jokers. Oh, yeah. Know, oh, yeah. The irony that Kingmaker yeah. would man, I mean, ran up being Impractical Jokers. So. <laughs> <laughs> Especially at the conversation this week. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, look, like Al Pacelli said, we ain't curing cancer here. You know, we're just <laughs> making music. We're writing some songs. We're trying to play some music, make some people happy. It's like, it doesn't have to be World War Three. At least it isn't for me. You know, that's that's not my thing. Maybe this brothers. Live and let live. You move on. And, you know, that's 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 why, again, I don't, you know, you know, you, you don't, you know, when your kid's having a temper tantrum, you don't fight with them. You just go, all right, yeah, fair enough. 
Try it out. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then you yeah. move on. Can, can you at least fact check something for me? Because I, I want to read something because Marty Friedman is one of my biggest heroes. We had him on Lost Symphony. And for those that don't know, we did a tribute to our friend Ollie Herbert. And we actually reunited you with Marty Friedman on these these tunes so if people want to go back and hear i guess 50 percent of the rust and peace lineup it exists on lost symphony chapter three uh but there's one thing i read because i remember the whole risk period of megadeth and in the on blabbermouth it says quote dave mustaine one of the main reasons marty friedman left megadeth was because of the solo in bread fan uh, bread, bread fan, Metallica. Breadline. Yeah. Breadline. Yeah. <laughs> see, yeah. see, I conflated it. That was a song where Marty wanted to do the solo so badly, and he did. But when we got the song back, our management said, we don't like that solo. Marty was already gone, so I agreed to redo it. But I told them they'd have to tell Marty, and they didn't like his solo and wanted to redo it. Uh, and they didn't basically they didn't tell Marty they, it was the record. It was the onus of the record company to tell mm-hmm. Marty. So when upon playback. Marty yeah. starts crying. Oh, I, I remember because it's, because it's funny because I remember sitting there complimenting Marty going, dude, that is a kick-ass solo. And he kind of was like, and he's like, I didn't play that. I'm like, oh, oh God. <laughs> all, right. all right, Dave. Well, that's a really good solo. It kind of sounded like Marty. I, you know what I mean? And that was a, that was the moment right there when that happened. Now, look. It's your fault. Obviously, there, one, <laughs> no one leaves a band over one solo. You know, honestly, for Marty, the, the, the ending had started back in 93 when a drug and alcohol issue within the band had happened. The tour was canceled. Japan Budokan was canceled. You know, me and Marty had already gone over to Japan a few months earlier to depress and, uh, you know, take pictures outside of Budokan. I mean, to play Budokan is the Holy grail, you know, um, especially at that time, um, you know, for, for guys like us. And when that was canceled, that Marty even said on euthanasia or maybe it's on cryptic writings, he said, he goes, man, that the wind was really taken out of our sails. And we kind of got it back a little bit on euthanasia. Um, we went back over to euthanasia for about three weeks and toured Japan at that time. But we never played Budokan. We never kind of hit that level again. As big as Megadeth, you know, was and has been, you know, that was the one for Marty. That was kind of the one. And I think when that went away and he realized he would never get that back, um, I think for him that that was that was kind of the I, I would say that was the beginning of the end for him. And he hung in there for a lot of years. And I mean, the risk record, you know, he was called in to write a lot of stuff. Um, and, um, you know, his name is on a lot of stuff. And, um, you know, the, the, the truth of it is, I don't know how well he was compensated for it. You know, I seem to remember seeing the publishing split on it. Um, you know, that's why I'm glad to see Kiko got his writing on this record because, you know, he 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 does a lot. <laughs> you know, he does a lot from just a let's get this shit done kind of mentality. You know, and again, I, I wasn't in the room for the last year, so I can't speak anymore to anything on, on the Megadeth record, you know, uh, to that, nor do I want to. But, um, you know, these guys who are sort of the unsung sidemen, uh, if you will, and Marty wasn't even the sidemen. He was, you know, very much a member of the group, but... You know, when they finally get their due, you know, it's deserved, believe me, you know. Uh, and my kind of deserved day came probably by about Countdown to Extinction um, and even on Euthanasia. And, you know, it, it, that was an era when we had come of age as a band. That lineup was was working well together. We were making great music together. And, 
you know, at some point, everybody needs to be brought in to be, you know, not just told you're a member, but paid like a member and compensated and treated and all, all those things that go along with it. So, you know, look, every band has its challenge. Every, you know, great rock and roll bands, you know, aren't these tepid, lukewarm personalities. They're feisty and fiery. And, you know, you can just imagine what it is. You know, it's not for most people, believe me. Um, most people could not have survived, you know, the almost 40 years in the yellow submarine like I did. That's for damn sure, you know. And uh, um, as, as in any career band, you know, you're going to go through a lot of stuff, man. It's like, you know, your brothers, brothers fight, brothers love, they kiss, they make up, and then they punch each other in the face and they hate each other. You know what I mean? It's, it's what it is, you know. So, uh, um, you know, so it's, it, it is what it is. And, and so that's why it's like, you know, I remember David Lee Roth always had that quote, you know, don't sweat the small shit and it's all small shit. You know, it really is. And, um, when people start digging their heels in on stuff and I have to be right, and this is, it's like, you know, what, just fucking let it go, man. Move on. You know? So at least that's been my approach. All right. I'm not negative. All right. Well, I'll go to work with this guy and make that record. Then I'll work with him and I'll make that record and then I'll go and tour and do this, you know, so start to a me, few companies. <laughs> yeah. Just, you know, fucking move on, man. I mean, look, there's a reason it ended, you know, obviously we're seeing it now, you know what I mean? So it's kind of like, you know, it's life has moved on, you know, I'm a year, I'm a year down the road from all that. So in my opinion, you know, I'm not lamenting any of it. That record is five years old for me. So I'm, I'm way over that record, you know, so I'm on to, you know, the new one with Jeff Scott Soto. I've got this thing I'm doing with the guys down in, in uh, Dieth. So to me, those are the new current, you know, when we get well, off I, this, I'm going to pick I, up I the wanna, bass. I want to hear it immediately, but I have one last question because this blew my <laughs> mind and I, I, I need to know it. it there's a, a quote. David's got some moments of greatness where he goes from being a star to a superstar. Most notably is the riff I wrote for Peace Sells But Who's Buying. When I showed that to him, he embraced it and people fell in love with his playing and the rest is history. Is that a true story? <laughs> well, look, did he come up with the riff? Yeah, I've never I've never gone around and said, you know, look at this great riff I wrote. Again, that song was put together by the four of us in the room. A hundred percent, right? And I now play with Chris Poland and Kings of Thrash and I'm sure if you asked him, he would a hundred percent agree because they brought... Remember, we're driving down the road. I think we're going up. I would drive in my van and David ride shotgun and you'd come up with ideas and I'd be driving and we'd talk about stuff. I think we're going up to pick up Gar Samuelson one day for rehearsal. And he said, he goes, what do you think about peace sells, but who's buying? He's like, sounds cool. What's it about? You know what I mean? And it was just kind of an idea that he had. And then he wrote it. You know, again, I've never been one to denounce or shoot down Dave's brilliance because he's got moments of 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 absolute brilliance and quite honestly simple genius you know what i mean it's simple it's not like he's in a room you know with you know paganini and these off trip it's he's not just, robert fripp coming up with Fripptronics. he just like wakes up and he goes oh here's wake up dead yeah exactly exactly and that's the beauty of it you know what i mean and that's why it's it's you know eddie van halen I think was probably very gracious with it because, you know, as people, you see these interviews now and people would, people would, you know, ask him, you know, where does this come from? He goes, it doesn't come from me. It comes from somewhere else. I'm just the channel. And he was very gracious about it. And as I've sat in the room with Dave and watched it, it's the same thing. You know, it channels through him. I don't know where the hell it comes from. Cause I didn't go like, 
I could have done that. Benny could have done that. Like, that's not that complicated, but it came through him. For whatever reason, you, my son, are the channel by which Wake Up Dead shall flow. You know, and that's really what it is. It's that simple. And I've sit there. I've been a witness to it, both high and sober. <laughs> and it's like, there it is, you know. So that's, again, that's, that's his... Uh, that's his, you know, gift. I mean, look, we, and that's why everybody in in that room and that band and any band is is all just a, a a piece of that puzzle that fits together. Hey, we need a guy to play the bass. We need a guy to hit the drums. We need a guy to do this. This guy over here is the channel by which the music flows. It, to which you know, clearly, Dave is you know is is that and and you know drives that that engine of of, of Megadeth. So I've been the first to acknowledge it, the first to be complimentary about it. At the same time, it's like. It isn't just the part, it's how the part's played. It's the charisma, in this case, of me playing it, of how I played it, the way that I was well, trained and grew Miles, up as a bass player and using Miles, a pick and learning to you know jump strings. Because it's a very complex riff in the sense that it was written you know, really by a guitar player, not so much as approached as a bass. And a couple of things that that's taught me is that you know, and because we're all musicians here, sometimes you'll write something on piano, move it to guitar. I just did it the other day. I wrote something on piano. I put my hands down on freaking B minor, which is just the saddest of keys. Awkward, not, not quite it's an the awkward of key. Keys. Right. Yeah. And then I like was going, I'm not finding, I'm kind of got a little vocal melody. I don't know. So I picked up my guitar and I dropped it down to freaking B, you know, yeah. you know, like, you know, and all of a sudden I was in this drop tuning and all of a sudden I'm like, yeah, there it is. Now it sounds like Sabbath meets Sepultura. It's like now <laughs> nice. this is this now it's speaking to me, you know, but the initial hit came on the piano. So same thing. I'll play something on guitar and then I'll move it over to the bass. And like, oh, this is a freaking cool bass line, you know. So, you know, we find things in different places and then it's just where they ultimately land that sort of tells the story for the public to hear. Well, you said something interesting because Miles Davis used to say it's only 20, it's 20 percent the note that you're playing and 80 percent the attitude of the motherfucker playing it. And yeah. I think that that's a that's a serious thing, you know, as far as like, OK, maybe 100%. you did do that. It's why I told Dave he needed to be the singer in Megadeth. He stood out here waiting. We had like like the fifth or tenth flaky fucking singer that didn't show up for rehearsal one night. On New Year's Eve of 1983, we're sitting at, at uh, Curly Joe's studio, which is like an old brewery downtown L.A. I guess it's now condos. I drive by it once in a while when I'm out in L.A. And I look over and go, God, the fucking shit we did over there. But, um, <laughs> you know, the uh, but so Dave just walks up and I think it was like chosen ones or something. Right. He had the piece of paper. He stuck it up on the freaking wall or he stuck it on a mic stand and he stood up there and he been we ran through the tune and he you know, sort of belted out the, the, the words as best he could in a phrasing that he felt worked over it. <coughs> and it was like, I was like, dude, that was great. And he was like face red, like coughing, almost falling on the floor, you know, hyperventilating. Cause you know, starting to sing and play and not really being a, a singer, so to speak. And he said, really? I said, of course. I said, look, you're writing the shit. It's like, who else is going to know how to sing that like that? I've never heard any of this stuff, son, because we never had a singer. Dave was always trying to teach these singers, like, okay, here's the phrasing. You know, the song Set the World Afire. It was the first song Dave wrote after Metallica. It was called No Survivors. And uh, I remember him sitting down trying to show people how to sing it. And no one would really grasp it because there are these guys walking in with their coiffed hair and their scarves trying to be, you know, looking like they're either in 707 Survivor and Half Aerosmith or something, right? And trying to teach them how to sing 
well, this new music we're inventing called basically to be dubbed thrash metal or something, but it's, you know, we're basically inventing a new sound and people are coming in just going, well, I just want to be Vince Neil or David Lee Roth or whatever else is happening on the Sunset Strip because I'm just following what they're doing. And here we are with Megadeth leading a whole new path, even amongst the big four. I mean, we were doing something very different from Metallica and Anthrax and Slayer. I mean, that's why we're the big four. Each one of us has a different sound we're a different pillar that holds up the the platform you know and so finally when dave just got up and saying it was like dude you do it of course in his mind he went well i guess that means we split the money with between the four of us you know i mean you know <laughs> always being kind of a jokester you know so <laughs> five four instead of he five ha- right he, ha- you know? he has a point though <laughs> he does he's a shrewd businessman he even right. said it himself right. so uh, <laughs> but, must be true but, <laughs> but 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 it is true but it is true and plus it balances the stage and i think for some way i'd always been in four-piece bands i only played in one five-piece band for a minute had a keyboard player so i've always been a four-piece guy dave just came out of metallica which was four-piece with the singer at center stage and so you know in a lot of ways i think it, we both were in agreement like yeah it's easier you know um so yeah i mean look that again it, just serendipitous moments were like out of out of you know m- you know necessity is the mother of invention it's like we need a singer and we don't have one and then he starts singing it's like well problem solved he's now the singer you know so um but it, it did bring about it reminded me that it is it's the current back to your miles davis thing it's the charisma of who's projecting the the note and telling the narrative that's why the you know sweating bullets works i remember when he called me up you know he, he goes it was early as i gave morning or something nine in the morning and we're writing the kind so of right about bits. now yeah exactly of the countdown record and he goes he goes Junior, check out this lyric you know and i'm going is he okay you know and he's hello me meet the real me none of me miss it's way like he starts singing it and i'm going is he high <laughs> I, that's fucking really good you know i'm listening going this is fucking brilliant fuck is he okay you know what i mean i'm just thinking to myself you know i'm having my own conversation hello me is he okay you know and um but it was great because you know look we've been through all the drugs and recovery and all this stuff and in a lot of ways it tells that story of of how we talk to ourselves you know and you don't get to be a drug addict or a fucking you know user of chemicals to have that conversation you know just a megalomaniacal person in your head Looking a at the me- world, a megalomaniac. Going, yeah, that's the word. Well, what you know, whatever. I mean, it's his story, and it's it's. I've had I've had people come up to me, or I'll get introduced to somebody, say, "Hey, it's David, you know, uh, from Megadeth," and people randomly go, "Oh yeah, you guys have that song, uh, Hello Me," and I, <laughs> I mean, the random like yuppies in a bar, you know. I mean, of all songs that they yeah. could remember, it's that one, you know. So. <laughs> It's like, no, we're not Adele. It's the other hello. Yeah. Right? Well, maybe they were tripping on acid during law school. And like, I thought, I thought Adele, got- yeah, Adele was a cover, wasn't it, of you guys? Yeah, that's what it was. Well, exactly. <laughs> that was Bob Dylan, but close. She covered Bob Dylan. Hey, man, it's a, it's a storied career. It's an adventure that I wouldn't want to have missed. I'm glad I'm, I'm a part of it, <laughs> you know, because, I mean, the stories only get, then you remember more stories as time goes on. And I always told Kiko and Dirk that. I said, well, guys, this is kind of a fucking weird gig. But, you know, the truth of it is, is when we get home and you're sitting around at the mom and Todd class with your kids and, or whatever you do when you get home, I promise you, your stories will be better than anybody else's in the room because it's like, we're literally living an unscripted reality TV show out here every day. 
That and, is such uh, a great way of describing the rock and roll life. I mean, it is. Yeah, no is, matter right? all the you bullshit know. that happens. Yeah, you're just like, totally. wow, great stories. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you know, what were you doing? I was playing violin in front of tens of thousands of people every night for the last couple of months. What? But, yeah, but also, you're Christmas right. Music, the, the personalities, you know? too, though, you know, is just like what makes it, you know, in a lot of ways. Well, when you look back, normal, the retrospect. Normal people don't do what we do. And that's, you know, <laughs> and that's for a reason. I always say people don't pay for ordinary. They pay for extraordinary, you know, and there's something about every one of us that gets on that stage is fucking crazy as we might be to do it and get up there and we, we morph into this other character. You know, we put our game face on and we become this other person for that moment. And that is part of who we are. And that's the one thing that I found <coughs> when people, whether it's therapists or recovery community or whoever, they try to pull that person out of you to get rid of it. It's like, you can't get rid of that person. That is part I of actually, who we are. So I wanted to talk to you about your new project with Jeff Scott Soto, uh, Soto yeah. Vacation in right. the Underworld, because I, I figured out a new reality television show that might help everyone get some calm. We need to get Ingve Malmsteen, and we need to get Dave Mustaine, and we need to put them in a band, and they need to write an album together, and then you guys can be behind glass. You and Jeff, just watching them out Mustaine and Ingve themselves themselves to the whole public so they could see how many personalities are in that room. Can we call it vacation in the underworld? That's <laughs> exactly where I was going, David. Thank you. It's a pretty good name for a reality TV yeah. show now that you mentioned it, you know. You have like dinosaurs, like, you know, like lost, right? It looks yeah. like Jurassic Park. <laughs> so can you speak Survivor. to this? Because I know I know that this record was done for a while. Um, I, I heard the new tune and it's actually, it's pretty merciless, dude. Like, uh, uh, the, I, I got to tell you, it's it's what, as a Megadeth fan, I want to mm. hear. Uh, how did this record come together? So I was writing um, what would become essentially kind of the next Ellison solo record because I did one in 20, well, 20, I guess 2018, it came out in 2019 called Sleeping Giants. It had three new original tunes. We had like DMC from Run DMC. We had Daryl on there and a few different guests. Um, Chris Bolin, singer from Blotsam and Jetsam. A few different people came in. And I, I, then I had some material that I'd written many years ago that we put on there. That's why we called Sleeping Giants. They were just kind of these tunes that were I thought were really good. David Glenn Isley from Jafria sang on some of it. John Bush. <clears throat> so that's... And then in 2020, we did a cover of a Post Malone song called Simp, uh, uh, Over Now. Um, and then while we were on a tour, um, and I guess late 2019 in Italy, we, we wrote the song simple truth. So these things were just laying the groundwork. And so I was writing the next record with Andy Martin jelly, my guitar player who lives over in uh, Verona, Italy. He's amazing. And we were writing it. I, I watch him every day. Just, I want He's you to incredible. know, I follow him. He's incredible. He's such He's a nice great. guy. He's like yeah. the greatest guitarist on the planet. So and talk about ass. a dude to step yeah. up. Badass totally. dude gunslinger just kick ass can play anything you put in. he's a president of a music school so he so he also puts together teaching curriculums and he teaches and as well as walks on stage and just shreds your face well off, it know? makes so sense because i mean i follow him on 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 instagram and on we're friends on facebook and i i don't right. remember how i became friends with him but like if i see someone play really well or whatever i might be a stalker and friend them right. and yeah, we yeah. started talking back and forth and i'm like who is this God, everything he posts is just clean and beautiful. So to all the Megadeth fans out there that listen to you know Marty and Kiko, <laughs> those guys are great. Yeah. Holy shit on Andy. 
Holy know, shit. Andy's, I'm telling you as a fan. Holy yeah, shit. Yeah. That guy's good. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I knew of Andy too. Kiko introduced me. We were funny. We were driving into Bologna. This was probably 2016. I think it was right as dystopia came out. And, and, um, I'm friends with Cobra, uh, from Cobra and the Lotus. Right. And so either her or her mom who managed her hits me and says, we're looking for a guitar player. I say, Hey Kiko, you know anybody? And he goes, funny enough, Andy Martin jelly. I'll hit him right now to come down. So he came to the show that night. And that's when I finally met Andy. I'd been seeing him online. So we met, he got the Cobra gig for a couple of years and um, we stayed in touch. And then when I, when me and Frank Bella went over to Europe to tour with Slash with Altitudes and Attitude, I knew I needed a guy to like kind of put it together. So I called Andy and, and that's the thing with Andy. He's a one call. Hey dude, I need, I need a band. I need a thing. He just plugs it all in. He gets all the musicians. He books the gigs. He puts it all together. So he's, he's, he's amazing. Even more so than just being a great guitar player. So as we were writing um, in early 2021, I, uh, he and I were talking in, in about singers. And, and he said, he goes, dude, just call Jeff. Because I'd actually had Jeff sing on the song called Writing on the Wall. I picked up my bass one day, wrote this whole thing, put drums, guitars on it, wrote the lyric. I, and I, for like five years, I was trying to find someone to sing this damn lyric, this song. And so finally, I just sent it to Jeff. I said, dude, can I PayPal you a couple of bucks and just sing on this fucking thing? I just, I got to get it out of my head and, and end out into reality. And he did. And it's great. And so Andy just said, dude, you love how he sings to your songs. Just have, send him some stuff. So we did. And that's how the collaboration started. And unfortunately, Jeff said, he goes, look, I don't want to just be the paid singer. I'd rather be part of this. Like, let's do this together. And hence Ellis and Soto, you know, it's our two names in the door. Um, and there it is. And so between me, Andy and, uh, and Jeff, we, we put the record together and, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, look, in my opinion, I wish it would have come out this spring, but you know, with vinyl order manufacturing delays and I think Madonna and Adele like gobbled up all the bandwidth for like a year. <laughs> so, so anyway, it's coming out now finally on October 7th. That's why we're rolling over to Italy next week. We're going to bang three shows in uh, Milan, Turin, and Rome, just to, because Jeff's going to be over there. I think he's finishing up a Sons of Apollo run. And then, as you know, Siobhan, you, you guys will all be out with TSO here coming up. So I said, look, we've got this moment where we can friggin' like, do just three shows. Like, let's just at least just go play some shows, because otherwise the record will come out, the moment will pass, and it could be, shit, it could be a year from now before we ever play together again. So I said, I'm always about just grab the moment. You know, let's just do it right now. You know, yeah, so, well, you are definitely, you're an inspiration for that. I mean, it's amazing how many things you do and just stuff that's always going on in the background in the midst of things you're already doing. And that's, you have an incredible amount of resilience for sure. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, I, uh, well, I wake up and I go, what am I going to do today? All right, let's call Jeff Scott Soto. You know, all right, let's book <laughs> flights to Italy. All right, let's go do, uh, let me call Jeff Young. Let's go play Kings of Thrash. You know what I mean? So it's, you know, it is, it's like, we want to play and we want to work and we want to go do stuff and you know, to me, it's all, you know, all these things are this all little startup projects. And to me, that's the fun of it. To me, the, the joy of getting together for the first few times of putting something together is we know that feeling, right? And, and it's, and it's such a great feeling to have that when it works and it's clicking and everybody's excited. And, and to me, that's, that's my favorite part of putting bands together. Album two can be okay, now we know each other. We kind of know what works, what doesn't. So we kind of work through that. And I think Mike Portnoy has it set, you know, we were talking about Metal Allegiance and 
he said, he goes, he goes, I find album three is the real acid test. If you can get to album three, you'll probably make the distance, you know, because album one's fun. Album two can be a pain in the ass. Album three is like, all right, I accept you for who you are. <laughs> Let's just get the studio and make it work. And I think there's probably some truth to that. That's definitely something that clearly you, you've. Uh, so it seems to me like you've expanded your portfolio because you have. Don't you? I talked to Drew, Drew, who directed yeah. Dwellers and is in the Lucid. Yeah. And he told me you guys are also working on a new EP. Is that we have an a EP thing done. too? Yeah. Yeah. We are working on that. Do you so sleep? We, do you sleep? Well, clearly not, because look at how early we're on this podcast. Mm -hmm. So, no. <laughs> Elves and coffee. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, I, um, well, I don't wake up hungover, so I guess that helps, you know. But, uh, you know, so that, that just. That does help. That does help, right? So that, that saves quite a few hours in, the, in a lifetime. Um, but, um, um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's like I said, it's it's kind of like just jumping from one to the next. You know, I mean, after this, I'll probably practice some Ellis and Soto stuff, and then I'm going in the studio to work on some other things later today. So, you know, just the life of a musician. You know, it's kind of like, well, if you, I don't like to look at it like an eight-hour workday. I hate looking at music like we need to get to work. We got to work on this. I was like, uh, now it just feels like work. It's like you took all the joy out of it. You know, so. To me, it's kind of like when inspiration strikes, you know, it's like, hey, let's let's uh, check out this thing I wrote or, hey, you want to get together and work on something or like Benny, you know, hey, dude, you want to fly out here and play on some tracks? It's, you know, remember, we set like two or three days aside. We ended up doing it all in like one day. We, we did five songs. It. We did yeah. even yeah. more songs than we wanted. Like the, the the electricity in the room, it was actually great because, you know, I had uh, when you came down, you and uh, Corey and my brother, Brian, who's also a bass player, you were writing charts to the song. You were like, what's the, the best contrary motion for this? And it first off, gave me a completely new perspective on you as a bass player, because I'm mm -hmm. like, oh, wow, he he really understands these tunes and like the bass lines that you wrote were incredible. And of course, you brought down uh, the modulus bass you used on cryptic writings. So I was like, right. immediately it's. Between your the, your hands and that bass, I'm like, oh my god, it's the exact bass sound I always dream of when I think of David Ellison. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. But for me, I, I agree with you when when uh, when all that inspiration strikes. Like so, I Corey and myself uh, and Siobhan were all just in Florida with Shannon Larkin working on an Apocalypse Blues revival record, and he did like mm -hmm. 16 hour days. He did that guy doesn't even eat. He's like, what do you mean eating? It's like it's 8:45, dude, and none of us have had breakfast. He's like, that's fine. We got more songs to do. But do you find that like you know the chemistry when you lose track of time, like you're in Vegas sitting in a machine? Totally. You know, it's so funny. Max Norman used to say that too when we were working on the Euthanasia record because he was multitasking. He had a little newborn baby at home. He's building the studio out here in Phoenix. Then he's coming over to where we were rehearsing to listen to tunes. So he was wearing all these hats. And I remember we wanted to take like a, a, a lunch break or something. Cause you know, like in LA, I, even today, obviously you just call Uber eats or something. They deliver it. Right. But uh, we're like, Hey, can we take a break to get something to eat? He goes, man, food's overrated, but food's bad for you, man. You shouldn't eat so much, you know, and he'd be like <laughs> shining on us like children, stop eating children. We must get to work, you know, oh my gosh. but, no, you're right. It, it it is. It's it's the best. The best music is when you when you lose track of time. You know, both when you're listening to it and when you're creating it. Because um, I mean, how about when we do that? I when I drive, I drive to California a lot. It's like a six seven hour drive. Get in my car. That's my just lose myself on the I ten freeway listening to music. You know, and I and driving home, I always put out Judas Priest heading out to the highway because as you're driving into Phoenix, that is the album cover, right? But remember there's like that computer paper going to the mountain 
I just takes me back to like 1980 Judas Priest when I guess Rob Halford had moved here. And, you know, there was like this, it was just a great moment in rock and roll. Our songs were feel good. You know, metal wasn't dark. It was more kind of this upbeat. You were just living after midnight in a major yeah. key. Totally. And so the, <laughs> I, I always put on that one on the way, on the way back into Phoenix, just because that's the that picturesque. That's it, you know, but you know, it's the same thing when you just lose yourself and you go, Oh my God, I just freaking hundred miles just flew by and like, wow, you know, I got to stop to pee and get something to eat. You know what I mean? So even listening to music, it should do the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. So, so inspiring. I need to get to work now. <laughs> <laughs> You're in the studio, Siobhan. You have those really nice speakers. There's really no excuse for you not to be doing something masterful back there. Well, no, but one thing I want to say I admire is that the, I, for the number of projects you have, you seem to be incredibly focused on each one, which I think is hard for some people. Like you kind of have to have one main thing or something that's kind of like all inclusive, but you're doing so many different things. I mean, how do you compartmentalize that or plan that? Or maybe, maybe it's just organic. You know, that is a good question, because I think in the first 20 years with Megadeth, you know, it was that it's and you, you we had no time to focus on anything else. I mean, we were traveling, we would make these records and then do these 18 month world tours, which, you know, the traveling alone would beat the hell out of you. You know, I did go to school, though. I remember I was talking. I I, I, I did a couple of classes at the University of Phoenix on the cryptic writings tour um, because uh, and to Dave's credit, he had actually started. He went to a, a class um, and it, that got my attention. I'm like, wow, you know, I never did get a college degree, you know, and, I, and I, in my back of my mind, I'm going, God, what if the band ends and I have to go get a job and I'd freaking, I I've never went to college. I'll be a loser. I'll be like sweeping the shop floor and or like working a Jiffy Lube, you know, I don't, you know, fall from grace. Right. So it's like, I better go get my degree. So it is funny though. I, I did, I did go to school and, um, and university of Phoenix is pretty easy because it was these five week courses and there are all these adjunct professors. But I remember the second class I did my, my professor who lived in Tucson, like two hours from where I am here in Phoenix, I'm in Nagoya, Japan, with my Apple laptop and my printer, doing my homework, go to the front. I had to go print out my homework and go to the front desk and pay like $87 to fax it to Tucson, right? So I would, I'd get it in my, my homework deadline, right? And then, you know, pack up, go across the street and go play whatever gig we were doing, you know? And, but it was, it was fun in the way that it was this right brain, left brain thing. And I think I got that from my dad, you know, because my dad was pretty pragmatic on things and yet i had a creative mind and you know he, he he really wanted to be an architect but he had to take over running our family farm in minnesota so i could tell he was kind of frustrated creative creatively and i think that's i learned after he died that that's probably why he supported me going out and just doing my thing you know like don't do drugs don't fuck up but like go have fun you know and mm -hmm. Of course, I did all three, um, but uh, you know, <laughs> as all good kids do, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, you know, so I think you know, probably having some of that parental support of like, you know, look, go rock, go have fun, be successful, but you know, like keep keep your life together. You know that that kind of thing. You know, was certainly a, a narrative that I, I heard growing up. So that probably helps even kind of organize my life when it comes to music, you know, it's like, you know, like now wake up podcast, okay. After this, pick up the bass, Ellison Soto, go to the studio today, work on the other stuff and kind of, you know, compartmentalize time because it, even in learning songs, which we've all done uh, both our own and other people's songs, you know, you can, it's kind of like homework. You can only absorb so much at a time. Right. And then you have to get up, walk away and clear your mind 
Because sometimes then it's coming, like, like like doing a puzzle. And then you come back and you go, oh my God, here's the piece right here. I didn't, I didn't see it. And then that's the little piece that goes, ah, oh, now that part makes sense. I, I was missing that one note right there, that one little passage. So, you know, it's important to spend regular time on these things and be disciplined with it, but also not to the point, again, I hate that it becomes work. You know, it's four letter word, play, not work, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'd rather go with playing music. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. With the companies you have, do you find that helps you break up um, and give you a fresh perspective on music? If you kind of shift your brain to more the the business side of things or outside of music. And then when you come back, you get a little bit of a bump. Probably. Yeah. The right brain, left brain thing, right? Whatever. Is it the left brain is the creative and then the right is the, the sort of. I believe so. Not a doctor. I'm not 100 percent sure. <laughs> and, and you know what's funny about that is I go to and if that's the case, we should probably look this up or I'm sure some troll will call us out that we're wrong and make fun of us. But uh, if left controls the right, you know, the right for me is my picking hand. And I give credit to Fieldy from Corn for this, because I'll never forget when he said this in an interview that our hand that picks and plucks the strings. It's the right side of the brain that that is supposedly the creative side. Okay, so that would control this. Okay, so that would control this over here, right? So then the pragmatic left over here is our personality. Our signature sound comes from the hand that we sign our signature with. Is so how as we put I, it. I found I from healthline.com, cool. the left brain mm-hmm. is it thinking in words, sequencing, linear thinking, mathematics, facts, and logic. Whereas right. the right brain is feelings, visualization, imagination, intuition, rhythm, holistic Perfect. thinking, arts. So I feel like so both sides right of my brain. brain have damage. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so if the left is doing that, that would make sense because that's the sort of uh, logistical side, right? If you're if you're picking and plucking with this hand, I just thought that was a great analogy from Fieldy, though that that it's our the hand we sign our name that we sign our signature with gives us our signature sound. That it isn't over here and all the noodly stuff. It's this hand right here, which is the very kind of deliberate, organized. That's the one that that right. would, that gives gives that sound so yeah absolutely I don't know if, if you other string How about players you, would agree with that yeah <laughs> i mean I, yeah. I completely agree on violin for sure i think the sound comes from the bow you know the bow arm and mm-hmm. you know where you approach the string i mean this is all acrobatics for the most part there's some tone in it but the personality right. certainly comes from the right hand in my opinion yeah 100 yeah. percent. right the, the long sweeps or the short and yeah yeah and, and yeah. obviously they work together but it's yeah you're your real lyrical voice well, kind of comes from and dynamics from, dynamics yeah, come yeah. from that you know for guitar yeah. bass all that stuff and and strings so like that's for for me when i hear someone their dynamics give away their skill more than you know a lot of people can move their fingers really fast and right. you know that's like kind of the thing in high school you find that like that one kid that can chromatically shred up and down the neck but then you put him in a band and you go all right uh go back well, to playing you by yourself that. doing your exercises <laughs> we were working on this we were working on the song no exit which features david um for for law symphony and also jeff loomis but we were working with jimmy bell and he used to always say i can't do those fancy tricks like the sweet picking and all that all i could do is the old-fashioned just picking but that but he basically so where most people are using these techniques that make it easier so you can just go he's actually old school chicken picking and it sounds so ferocious and we were like jimmy that's why you're literally the best and he's a lefty which i there's something weird about lefties that are really that good it's 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 incredible 
So he played lefty like this, right? Not yeah. right. He played lefty. So that means he would sign his name with his left hand. Right. right. Which is why he had this bizarre. Well, it's so crazy. Detail. Yeah. I actually took my phone and a um, and a GoPro and I put it near his picking hand because if you watch a guy like Steve Morse, he does the same thing where he does like these weird economy things that if yeah. you like, it's like watching a hummingbird. You know what I right. mean? And Jimmy Bell, the fact that he could do these arpeggios as fast as a guy like Jeff Loomis by actually physically picking it, tremolo picking is and it's as absolutely flawlessly as he does because that's the thing is he he's so meticulous in his and his statements that he says it, you don't miss any of it it's not like all those guys that are flubbing it and that to me is so impressive versus just like look at this technique i learned today it's good but it's like it's so fast and it allows you to cheat whereas like a guy yeah. like jimmy's like i don't know to take an elevator i just go up every <laughs> single step of the sears robot tower <laughs> to get to my office on the top floor every day and also walks 12 miles a day or something crazy like he that. He does walk yeah. 12 very miles OCD. a day because he's a... <laughs> yeah, very, yeah, very... He yeah. lost a bunch of weight. are a little bit. Yeah, we he, all he looks are. great. We well, you know, it's the same thing with tone because I, you know, I was the guy growing up in Minnesota because I grew up on a farm and my dad would give me, you know, a building of a shed on a farm to rehearse in and he helped me buy a PA and I'd study all these statistics about a Gauss speaker versus a JBL and a you know, uh, uh, what is it? BGW power amp versus a crown. And, you know, I really studied all the details and the statistics, right? So once I started buying professional, uh, sound reinforcement equipment, um, cause growing up in the Midwest, we had to have our own sound and lights and trailer and crew. And, you know, you had to have everything. That's when I got to LA and I'm going to walk into like the Troubadour or the whiskey. It's like, you guys got it so easy as walk in, plug and play sound and lights are here. It's like, yeah. no wonder they make you guys pay to play. You should. They pay for everything here, you know? So, but, uh, but so I remember buying it and, you know, and getting, you know, for a PA base, of course, sounds nice and big and round and it's so cool. And then I remember I'd get with the band and go, man, check out the bass tone. And as soon as they started playing, the bass just vanished. You know, this very hi-fi bass sound. It just, you, it was transparent. You couldn't hear it anymore. And I realized that's why people were playing through like SVTs and 810 speakers because they had this really kind of, there was like a real angriness to it and a kind of a gnarliness to the tone. And that's what made it sit well inside the kick drum. And, and that in those days, it was mostly Marshalls, you know, so Marshalls eat up a ton of mid range. And so that's why I, I got my tone to get down inside the kick and then kind of scoop up around the, the Marshalls and put that, that point and that bit of that click up on the top. That's what made me survive in a Marshall world, you know, is to have that. So, <laughs> Uh, which, you know, really, if you look at an equalizer on an amp, it's the California smile, right? It's the, uh, it's like boosted, well, for, you know, boosted bass, scooped mids, you know, accentuated top, you know what I mean? So they call that the California smile on a graphic equalizer. So that's, if you visualize what my tone is, that's basically what it is. I call that the dime bag. The night is out. Yeah, he because yeah, that band, but but that's that's yeah. one of those things as an audio engineer. When people say well, we want to sound like Pantera, it doesn't work because Rex Brown, his bass playing yeah. is right in the middle. He's like that Lemmy right. fucking loud in your face. Whereas Dimebag was all the he had, he had a two fifteen cab as a guitarist, which is ridiculous. Yeah. You know and all that low stuff. And then if you listen to Vinnie Paul, his drums are are all highs and lows with no mids. So the bass yeah, yeah. and the vocals are all mids, but it only works sure. in that band. Because, yeah. you know, they're all have such weird sounds that together it makes Pantera. But by itself, it's like you would never have. I used to always do the smiley face on the guitar, right. which is the worst thing ever. And I worst remember thing, one yeah. time we had a, a record guy come down and we told him we couldn't hear ourselves. We had like 
10,000 watts of PA. He's like, right. yeah, dude, that's because you have so much frequency cancellation going on. He's like, yeah. why are all your mids turned down? And I'm like, but Pantera. And he turned up all of our mids, turned down the volume <laughs> on everything, and readjusted it. And it's like, okay, I hate this sound, but I could hear myself. And it's like, oh, it's Van Halen again in here. You know what's interesting? Last week I went out to go see the uh, stadium tour with Motley, Def Leppard, uh, Poison, and Joan Jett. And what was funny, you know, it's funny to see the jeans and T-shirts version of Poison, right? Because back when we were jeans and T-shirts, they were all the flamboyant thing. But, you know, they're a really good band. And the bass and drums, in my opinion, carried the thrust of it, especially in a big stadium setting like that. Like, that really was that. And then then CeCe, I think, since he got clean, is an, he's, a, he's a great guitar player. He's always been really good. His tone's really good. His playing is is really come of age. I remember seeing him, some, me and Rat Skates, who was in Overkill, went up to go see him. I remember it was Rat and, and Poison. And uh, we were joking, there's these two old school thrash metal guys going up to see the hair metal movement, you know. But it's a great night out, man. These guys have fun songs. There's, you know, there's... People are there to have a, you know nothing but a good time, right? Well, I have to ask about that because first off, uh, Poison and Joan Jett and Def Leppard are all phenomenal bands. Bands that, like yeah. Def Leppard's so good, like you understand why they've been around for 40 Dude, years. They, uh, I mean, they, they were like, is this funny? Because then Motley comes out and their show is great, of course, and what they do. And, is it? Uh, no, I want to talk about that because no, I, I can't was, handle Vince Neil. It was great. I can't handle it. You know what? Vince, Vince sang great. He, you know, he wasn't doing the let the audience sing. He really... How he deaf sang are great. you? And and he sang that like Vince to me. Vince looked like an entertainer who was showing up, going to work, and delivering. Really? Goods, I mean, yeah, hundred percent. Wow. I thought they were great. And then Def Leppard closed tonight here in Phoenix, and of course they are like sonic royalty. I mean, they just sound amazing. They sing great. They've got such a polished sound about them that's very enjoyable to listen to you know especially after a whole day of you know having rock and roll pummeling your ears to me Def Leppard was kind of the nice cherry on top you know to as a way to finish the night off so no I, I thought it was great and you know like it's kind of a big four of uh you know a big four of 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 that genre even though I guess if you really had a big four it'd be quiet where I at rat motley and maybe docking, you know what I mean? But in a way, it was, you know, it was, it was cool. It was that thing. So thank you. Anything so much. you want to let people know yep. about right now before you hop off? Like, what should people be paying attention to? Well, look, you know, uh, obviously, Ellison Soto record coming out October 7th. We're heading to Italy to go do our shows here um, in a couple of weeks. We've got Kings the Thrash coming up, which is uh, me and Jeff Young, um, who played on the So Far So Good So What record, and our special guest, Chris Poland. And uh, we're going out and playing The Killing Is My Business and so far so good. So what records in their entirety uh, mid-October. So October 12th to 15th, we're going to go do that. And, 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 and beyond, you know, now people are calling for that. And, and then I have my uh, record with the guys in Dieth. We're going to be making an announcement about that. They're, uh, it's my Polish death metal band. And, uh, Heard it. That's yeah, also yeah. relentless. It's great. It's very cool. It's super good. So yeah, so it's kind of like I got nice and again, we have a new a new lucid uh, EP we're going to be dropping before the end of the year. So those are kind of those are my big four. Those are my four pillars. of. Don't you have artwork coming out with like lights and things? Yes. Yeah. The, the, the base luminosity thing. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's coming out here in a couple of what weeks. Is, what so. is, what is that? Explain that to the dumb, dumb so here I before you leave. Base and basically it, it's weird how they, I wore a glove that had these electrodes on it. So as you move and play, it creates, they sort of, they capture it with a, with the uh, camera, uh, like a, you know, just 
photo photography and they capture this and they it basically prints onto a digital canvas um that you then buy the print it's very cool it's very clever yeah so very cool. it's uh yeah. So where is the best place for people to find all of your things? Like, do you want to share a website or one sure. central location? Uh, DavidOllison.com. Kind of everything pushes through there. Uh, my Facebook.com slash David Ellison. Those are really the, the, the two places to find it all. We love you, David. Thank you for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Great to see you. Thank you so much, David. Take it easy, David. See ya. Thank you, as always, for checking out this episode of 2020. Please visit 2020-d.com. Like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. Instead of a throwback clip this week, we're actually going to play you a track uh, from Lost Symphony that features David Ellefson as well as Jeff Loomis. It's called No Exit off of Chapter 2. Check it out.
Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Gray Street.